got like favorites here. You guys are all snuggling over there. It's nice. Just want a lot of cuddles, I guess. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm going to be talking about effective prayer and how to be effective in prayer. This is a topic that is uh, very interesting to me. Hopefully, it'll be interesting to you. And as I was prepping for this, I found that um, uh, it kind of meandered a little. So if you notice a little meander, I'm sorry. It's, uh, um, but that's the heart of, the, of what I wanted to get to, was like how to be effective in your prayers and kind of factors and pieces of scripture that kind of point to whether you're um, going to be effective or what, uh, what will help you be listened to by God. And um, one of the things that also kind of got me thinking about this was the uh, prophetic word from last week that Norm gave, which was about uh, a really big pool and kind of a track around it. And uh, the idea was that there was a wave going around and around in this pool. I'm abbreviating. Uh, and uh, so there's a wave going around and around in this pool. And the picture was... Uh, you had to kind of run around on the track and kind of catch up with the wave, keep up with the wave, and then jump in. And, um, and then you could kind of be in the water. And, and uh, often, uh, for me at least, a track represents, I mean, it sounds like work, right? Like you're on a track. And it also, uh, but even more than that, it, uh, it was kind of, and so for me, sports is kind of a, often a symbol of spiritual warfare. And a pool and being in the water, and especially a wave, is usually kind of the spirit, like being in the spirit and things like that. So that's what kind of got me going because as we were talking about it, we were like, well, it's work. Like, how do you get in the pool, right? And, and this is a dichotomy that we have in uh, of kind of conflicting things um, in the Bible and how do you make sense of it? How do you put them together? And uh, then on Saturday, uh, or sorry, Friday, I was getting ready for the radio and one of the things that I was talking on was um, this research on passion, which I thought was interesting. And I'm not going to go into it right at the moment, but basically um, the, the question was, do you find your passion or do you develop your passion as a person? And what they found was that people who thought that they should find their passion thought really and acted really differently than people who thought they needed to develop their passion. Um, it's a little bit like if you were talking about marriage and you talked about um, finding your love match versus having an arranged marriage. So if you're, in our culture, we're like finding the love match capital, right, of the world, right? Like that's every movie and every song is like finding your little new, this is the kind of um, Cupid myth, right? Where it's like you get hit with the arrow, the other person gets hit with the arrow, and there's some pixie dust, and, and the myth goes on, right, where it's like, okay, that you get the pixie dust, you have this wonderful love match, it's no work. And then, they don't really emphasize this, but if the pixie dust goes away, If the pixie dust goes away, what happens? I mean, what are the chances? I mean, Cupid doesn't hit everybody, right? Like, you have to find that. And that was hard to find. Maybe it took years, maybe sometimes decades to find. And if the pixie dust goes away, what are the chances that that person and you are both going to get hit with the ulcer sometimes, right? And so that's that. And then there's the other side, which we don't talk about very much, which is uh, arranged marriage, which focuses more on the institution of marriage, right? And we ignore that part, but it's very important, which is you're supported, and it gives you 
uh, the, the ability to do things like raise children and have business and and uh, gives you protection in hard times and <laughs> <laughs> our culture is more over here you can tell <laughs> so in the arranged marriage side it's uh, it's not a love match it doesn't take long to find you just have to get I don't think it takes maybe it takes a long time I don't know but there's a edit right um, if you want to have a happy marriage anyway so that's the developing and what they found in this research was that if you were on the find find your passion, find your love, find your passion side, you became very passive. People became passive. And if you were on the develop your passion side, um, then people were much more active and willing to deal with difficulty and push through. So it's important what you believe. So now I want to talk about prayer. And do we find our power in prayer? Or do we develop our power in prayer? And I hear both whenever I talk to people. And if you use the right wording, you can go both sides. But if you use the wrong wording, both sides don't work, right? Like, if you go over here, well, maybe I'll get into it. So, okay, so you, there's, there's both. There's definitely both, and we'll talk about it. I'm not going to go one point at a time. Otherwise, you get lost, right? Okay, in the Old Testament, requirements for prayer. Proverbs 28.9. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. I don't hear that preached very often. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. But we don't live under the law, right? So this doesn't apply. I don't know about that. Um, I like the, the idea that the law is the ways of God, right? The laws are the ways of God. When you listen to the law, you're listening to who he is. Don't want to go too far with that either, but yeah. Obedience, right? Proverbs 21:13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry and not be answered. He too will cry out and not be answered. Ouch. But that's the Old Testament, right? I'm a big believer that the Old Testament and the New Testament have the same God. Um, amen. So let's go to the New Testament. For those of you who may we wonder about that. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. I said it. I actually read the scripture. As the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you don't do this, your prayers are hindered. If you don't live in your relationship with understanding, your prayers are hindered. That's the New Testament. This is Peter talking. Natasha liked this one. She said I don't know why. I don't know why. She emphasized it. I'm a great husband. <laughs> it goes on later, a little bit later. It says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
shoot, that's the New Testament. It has a few others I'll just read. Those are kind of the main ones that I wanted to cover. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get. Sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Here's one, Zechariah. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen. Ouch. Okay. So there seems to be things that we need to do or have or be in order to have our prayers listened to, at least in a certain way. I mean, I can't escape it. It's, rep- it's repetitive. It goes on. It's New Testament, Old Testament, prophet, Peter, everyone. You know, it's like they're all talking about it. The Psalms. So we need to be righteous in order to have our prayers answered. Right? Isn't that kind of terrifying? Isn't that a little bit terrifying? I think we have this idea that God's going to listen to your prayers no matter what you do. I don't think it really bears out in kind of our lives that way, but it's so mysterious that we don't really want to talk about what actually impacts our prayers being answered. But it also seems clear that some people's prayers are answered more than others. It also seems clear that some people's prayers are different than other people's prayers. But I think it's terrifying. Okay, so we need to be righteous in order to have our prayers answered, it seems. And yet none of us are righteous. Right? None of us are righteous. Romans 3, 10, as it is written, none is righteous, not... No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So are none of our prayers listened to? So I'm going to go back and forth a couple times here. So nobody's listening, right? Then we have to be righteous, but wait, we can't be righteous. But we have the righteousness of Christ. Right? Okay, well, we have the... Okay, well... We have to be righteous, well, but we're not righteous, but we have the righteousness of Christ, so then all of our prayers should be answered every time, right? Because we have the righteousness of Christ just by being a Christian. Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He did not waver from the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced of what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was Abraham. So do we have to do anything then? Well, Peter, which was the one that I was kind of emphasizing there in the New Testament, when Peter wrote this, he was writing to the church. Presumably filled with Christians. Verse 1 of 1 Peter, which was the scripture with being a good husband, says, to those who are elect, exiles, in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He was writing to Christians in these various regions, regions in the Roman Empire. So he was writing, you need to do this in order to have your prayers listened to to people who had the righteousness of Christ. If they were just about the righteousness of Christ, you wouldn't have to say that because they already had the righteousness of Christ. So you don't have to do anything to have your prayers answered. But he was writing to those people, so then maybe they do need to do something. Maybe they do need to be something in order to have their prayers listened to. And that's where the back and forth ended. 
It's like, okay, we have to be righteous, but we're not righteous, but we have the righteousness of Christ, but it's written to people who have the righteousness of Christ. So we must have to deal with this. It has to apply to us. It's a, he's not talking to non-Christians about their prayers. They're, they're not praying. I don't know. They're not praying to Jesus. So if you're talking to people and you're saying your prayers won't be listened to, presumably even in that sentence you're talking to Christians who have the righteousness of Christ because they're praying. No? Okay. So we're in a dilemma. That's the tension in the sermon. <laughs> How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? So harsh. Hebrews 12. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now I want to say that when I'm talking about working, I'm not talking about salvation. Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which, get, uh, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So I, don't, I want to just separate that right now. When I'm talking about effective prayer, I'm not talking about whether you're saved. I believe that you can have the righteousness of Christ and then be somewhere in this area of having your prayers listened to or not listened to as much. Yeah. So I'm not talking about salvation. That's a free gift. But it, it, it gives you this impression, if we're supposed to be righteous, then maybe we need to do something, which seems to be an idea that Christians have a lot of trouble with, that we have to do anything, right? But oftentimes that's mixed up with this idea of getting salvation. You have to do something in order to be saved. Which I don't believe you need to do anything to be saved. My, parent, my children see me as a worker. We, uh, when we go places without me, apparently, the kids will ask for something. And Natasha will give some reason on why we can't have it, like a trip somewhere, or like something too big. And then the children will say, well, just tell Dada to work more. <laughs> <laughs> Why is Dada coming home to play with us? <laughs> I want to go to Hawaii. I believe that we do need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I believe that things happen when we do. Working to get love versus working because we're in love. I didn't want to read the whole parable of the prodigal son, which is why Cliff read it so nicely to us. So it's a story of a man who wanted his inheritance, went off, squandered it, took it, squandered it, came back, and was uh, mercy was given to him. and He was brought back into the family. And then there's the older brother, who's been this faithful servant, and gets angry when this lavish party is thrown for the younger son. He gets angry. Where is it here? But he was angry and would not go in. 
he says, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have, I never transgressed your commandments at any time. You never gave me a goat, even. I worked for you, and you don't love me. Do you hear that in that? I worked for you, and you don't love me. You should love me because I worked for you. You're not showing me love. I don't feel loved by you, and that's a problem. Why is it a problem? Because I worked for you. So this older son is making a connection between I worked for you, so you should love me. Now, one thing that's not mentioned in this story is that the son probably worked. Now, when did the son work? He probably worked before he left, to some degree. But if you continue the story, I'm pretty sure he kept working when he got back. I mean, the party was a great party. And, you know, maybe in those times, parties were even a few days. But when the party's over, there was still a field that needed to be worked at. And I'm pretty sure that both sons would have gone back to work. But I bet you their attitude would have been different in how they returned to their work. The older son is bitter and feeling like, I have worked and I don't feel loved. Maybe he would even go to the place of, if I work harder, maybe he'll love me more. But if you picture this other brother, when I picture him, when I think about him going back to work, how do you picture him? He just had a party, he just wasted everything, and he's going back to work. What do you think his attitude is as he goes back to work? Do you think he's going to work because he wants to make his father love him? I think he's just realized how much his father loved him, even with doing nothing except ruining everything. And yet when he goes back to work, why is he working then? If he knows how much his father loves him, why does he have to work? I think he's working because his father loves him. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve to be there. And what, did he, what was the father's answer to the older brother? He said, you have always been with me. He's like, don't you realize what you're working for? Don't you realize what your reward is? That you're, it's, not the, it's not the feast. You get to be, I am your great reward. You have always been with me. You've always been with me. And what's the reward of the younger brother? He gets to go out and work and be with his father. When Simeon loves to work with me, if I ask him to do anything with me, he's excited. And I don't think he's working with me because he's wanting to get me to love him. It just doesn't feel that way. I think he's working with me because I am his reward. He's working with me because he wants to be with me. He's not working to get me to love him. He's working because we're in love. It's so similar. I don't need Simeon's help. I don't. And I love him even if he doesn't work with me. I don't need his money. I gave it to him. And it's not much. (laughs) 
It's just fun to be with him. It's just fun to be with him. And he's learning from being with me. He wants to understand me better. So when I talk about work, I'm not talking about salvation, because that's a free gift. And when I talk about work, I'm not talking about working in order to get your father to love you. So what, now there's, there's a, work is a big area, right? Like there's a lot to talk about with work. And I'm hoping I'm giving you just a taste of how potentially it's okay to work for the Lord. I don't, sometimes I get frustrated because the English language doesn't have enough words. I know we have a lot of words, but there's places where I find in therapy and in preaching where there's just not enough words. And there should not be the same word for working because you're in love and working in order to get love. Those should be two different words. The best one I could come up with is flow. Like, if you're working because you just need to get a paycheck, it's like, I am grinding this out, right? And then working because you're just in love with it, and it's like a flow experience. It's not quite right, though, because sometimes you need to grind it out in order to get to the flow, so it's like, ah, you know, like, it's not perfect. But it's just, I see Christians spinning in this, you know? They spin. They go around and around and around, and it's like, well, i got to go to work, but that doesn't make sense. I know it's work, you know? Like, and then they... It's just like how we were spinning in that conversation around, is it work, am I allowed to work to get into the spirit? And it's like, well, I have to rest to get into the spirit, but is rest work? I guess I could choose not to work, but work is something in our minds because it's not supposed to be pleasant, and rest is pleasant, and I have, work is something you have to do that's active, so is rest work? Kind of, because I could choose not to do it. Anyway, it's just like, people just, I, it's spinning all the time. So I want you to hear me that work is okay if you're doing it because you're in love. And one of the first things that we should work at, one of the first things that requires effort is to be in love. The first piece of work that's on your table and with the Lord is the work of being in love. There is no Cupid. There is no Cupid. Maybe a little bit in the beginning, but there's no Cupid. <laughs> Maybe a little in the beginning. God gives you kickstarts, but it's not the main plane. If you want to be passionate for decades, there's no Cupid. If you want to be passionate at a conference, there's a Cupid, but not, not for decades. Not for decades. There's the Holy Spirit, kind of a Cupid, but like, you've got to work at it. And he tells us how to work at it. And it doesn't look like the work that we think of when we think of work, which is why the English language is so frustrating. Because it's not the same thing as what we normally think of as work, which is what we don't like. But it is effort. It's something we choose to do. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. You will ask for what you desire, and it shall be done for you. No work, right? That's abiding. Come on, Cyrus. There's no work in that. It's just abiding. If you abide in me, I'm going to read it properly here. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask for what you desire, and it will be done for you. That's no work, right? That's abiding. That's what we're talking about, Cyrus. That's abiding. 
Well, abiding is work. Abiding is so much work. It is so much work. It's, it can be a flow experience. It can be a grinding experience. It's something definitely that you choose to do. And if you don't choose to do it, you don't have certain rewards. And if you choose to do it, there's a paycheck. And the paycheck is you get to be with me. You get to be with me. So it's work, and it fits, but it's not great, right? Because work, if I say work to a crowd, I'm sure if I put you all in an MRI, you'd have like this, like, you know, you'd all just like burst inside. It's like work, and you're all like, oh, you know, it's just like exam, and you're all like, oh, this whole this kind of stuff happens to you, right? And it's like work, and it's like, oh, no, that's not good. But abiding sounds right. Well, it is work. And it's your first work. So why can we abide and everything will be done for us? I thought we had to do be, like, be nice to our wives, and I thought we had to like listen and do all these things, right? To give to the poor. I'm going to make a list. I'm going to, that's actually how I started the sermon. I was like, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to make a list of all the scriptures that talk about prayer and what gives you power takes away power. I did. And then I got other stuff. Because it's all right there. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And that's not the righteousness of Christ. That's a free gift. Abiding is not a free gift. It can feel great and it can be easy, but it can also be difficult and it's a choice. In John 14, a little bit before this, but kind of part of the same talk, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So again, we go back to that righteousness thing, right? Like we have to, if we love him, we're going to do things. So what is it? Is it abiding or is it doing things? Well, it's both. If you abide in him, you're going to have all your prayers answered because you're going to love him and you're going to do what he says. So do I have to choose love or righteousness? Well, choose love. That's the best work. That's the first one I would choose. Abide in him. And if you're really sincerely abiding with him and doing the heavy lifting of abiding in him and his words are really in you, you will have not just the righteousness of Christ, but you will have the born-out walk of Jesus in your life. And every prayer will be answered. Every prayer will be answered. You might pray different things. You might pray different things than you are now. Or maybe you're already doing this and I'm just catching up. But like, you know, you will pray different things if you're abiding than if you're not abiding. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. I have time. Okay. I was wondering if I was going to say something, but I'm going to say it. Okay. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you look at the Beatitudes, and I covered the Beatitudes pretty early in the church history, which is like a couple weeks, but like, anyway, I covered the Beatitudes. And uh, if you look at them, the, the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is the fourth beatitude. And you have to go through a process in order to get there. So it's not just seeking after righteousness. 
that wouldn't be quite the right fit. It's seeking, I'm going to punch, go to the punchline, it's seeking righteousness like the prodigal son, not like the older brother, and I'll show you how. You have to first have poverty of spirit. You have poverty of spirit, which is the first beatitude, and then you get the kingdom of heaven. Then, because of your poverty, oh, you know, I'm not where God wants me to be. Then you mourn, and you're like, oh, there's work. Mourning, right? Like, oh, I'm not where I, I'm supposed to be. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then you start to become humble, because it's like, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm really upset about it. And so when I see other people having problems, I'm really much more understanding of that. And I kind of know who he is, and I know who I am, and I know there's a difference. Blessed are the meek, the humble. They shall be given, inherit the earth. That is the younger brother. I'm great. Oh, wait. No, I'm not. I come back, and I get heaven, and I get earth. Given to me in a party. I'm put back with my robe on. Everything is given to me and I don't deserve it, and I'm so meek and patient with everybody now because I get it. I get that I'm not there, and it was just given to me. The righteousness of Christ is not something that I earned. And I am going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then we go to the next parable. I am going to seek after that, not because I want to get the Father's love, but because he loved me. He gave me earth and heaven, even though I didn't deserve it. And I'm so humble now and I want to be with him, and I want to understand him and do everything he's doing because he's so beautiful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So I'm going to do the work, but I'm not going to do the work because I need the Father to love me. I'm going to do the work because I have been given everything, and I don't deserve it. And I love him so much. You can tell the story so many different ways, and that's just another way. Okay, so in the beginning, I referenced this piece of research, right? If you remember, the passion, how you develop passion. Do you find the passion, or do you develop the passion? And I said, if you are a person who believes that you're supposed to find it, and it's going to fill you, and it's just going to do everything, and you don't have to do any work to maintain it, you become passive. I just loved the research on how they did this. It was so interesting. They put people in this passion, this interest, and they, they measured first, like, what do you believe? Do you believe that it's something that you develop, or do you believe that it's something that you find? And then they gave them a technical document about their new interest. A difficult read. A difficult-to-understand text. Something you really got to work at in order to get something from it. And the people who believed that, you know what, passion, just you find it. They didn't want to, they, they gave up on that passion. And they said, you know what, this isn't really what I thought I was, this isn't, like, there's no more Cupid. You know, it's not finding me. But the people who thought, you know, you've got to develop your passion, they're like, oh, a technical document. I can read that. I can do that. I can go through some hard things in order to kind of develop a passion, because that's what happens with passions, right? You have to kind of figure it out. You have to develop it. 
I love it. It's like a technical document. It's like the perfect piece of research for Christians, right? Do we have a technical document? Do we have a document that's hard to understand? Do we have a document that you really got to push into in order to get the stuff from it and squeeze it out? And if you believe that it's just going to be easy and that it's just going to find you and everything's going to be handed to you on a silver platter and your passion will just maintain itself, otherwise it's not really your passion because it's supposed to be easy, right? You're supposed to just find it. Well, maybe I'll just stop. <laughs> ah, it got hard. It must not really be my passion because it's, it's supposed to be easy. And you become passive. And I want to be with the people who are learning how to be passionate for decades. We need to work at developing our passion. And I don't want you to believe that there's something wrong with your faith if it gets hard. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. If, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. I don't want you to turn away because it gets difficult. I want you to be like, oh, that's my Jesus. He loves the poor. I want to be with him. Why does he love the poor so much? I want to understand you. I could just see Simeon like, oh, you like the poor, Dad? Let's go do it. I didn't realize. If you're sincerely seeking, if you're sincerely seeking after your lover, the person who loved you first, there's a spark that comes. And I believe that that's the fulfillment of God saying, you must be perfect. As I am perfect. You have to, you have to do the work. You have to be sincere. And he will fulfill your righteousness. So I would challenge you, that if you want powerful prayer, do the work of being in love with your Savior. Maintain it, foster it, even when it's hard. Because it means that you're going to have to change how you think about things. And as you change how you think about things, your prayers will change, your relationship with him will change. You'll be the first, he'll be the first thing you think about in the morning, the last thing you think about at night. The thing that you have to do will turn into the thing that you want to do. And then it'll be work, but it won't feel like it. And it might go back again, and you'll have to do it, and then you'll want to do it again. Readjusting, because it's work. You have to maintain it. And you'll be so passionate and so in love and you'll be so powerful. Let's pray. Ooh. Lord, you are our righteousness. 
But coming into the kingdom, Lord, is just the first step. It's like getting married. I was watching, there's a prayer, I'm, I was watching a, a Hallmark movie, and they, at the end they got married and it said the beginning. That was the end of the movie, the beginning. Lord, it's just the beginning when we come into your kingdom. Teach us to work, to maintain our love with you, to develop it. So that we can work with you in your fields, that we can be powerful to love others in our service and in our miracles, in the power of our prayers. Amen. I'm going to worship. Have Joel with us.